you know, prior to doing a toxicology fellowship, I think I underestimated how severe carbon monoxide toxicity is. In terms of tox, morbidity, and mortality, it's a leading cause in the United States. So, And in terms of ED visits, there's greater than 40,000, some estimate even higher uh, per year, visits related to carbon monoxide. And so it really is a silent killer because there's nothing to warn patients that they're being exposed to. Welcome to EMS Cast, where we provide high-level education for you, the providers on the streets. I'm your host, Ross Orpit. And I'm Matt Mendez. And Ross, it looks like that you convinced a guest to come on the show, but you somehow also convinced someone else to do the interviewing for us. Yeah, Will Berry has been on the show a couple of times now. He, again, is a paramedic lieutenant for the Denver Health Paramedic Division. He has just done a phenomenal job and is super passionate about this stuff. And I was really excited to uh, convince him to come on and do this interview for us. So what are we talking about today with Will and his guest, Ross? So his guest is going to be... John Ragu, who is a toxicologist forming a new toxicology group down in Colorado Springs. And they're going to be talking to us about something that's incredibly common, but incredibly cryptic when you're trying to identify it. And that's carbon monoxide poisoning. And just a reminder that the comments, views, and opinions today expressed by Will, John, Ross, and myself do not represent the views of our respective employers. So the impetus or the the catalyst to talk today about carbon monoxide poisoning was a a case that I reviewed, and I'm going to scrub a lot of the identifying factors, but in essence, it was a, a large group of people who were partying, and it was at the peak of COVID lockdown, so they weren't able to go to any bars, restaurants, clubs, anything and they were in an enclosed uh, outbuilding of their home and they were heating it with an open source of combustion. And from an EMS perspective, we responded for one patient experiencing, I think the initial call was syncope and then nausea vomiting. We ended up transporting 15 and it was this slowly evolving incident with multiple patients, none of whom were dying right in front of you, But when you review the case retrospectively, all of them had significant vital sign changes. They had vague symptoms that, when you look at it in hindsight, they're slam dunk carbon monoxide poisoning symptoms. And so I think think from an EMS perspective, it's a really good topic for us to talk about and to review and to remember what are our assessment tools that are going to help us identify these patients, the the stories and the history findings we're going to get with these patients. And then just remembering that a lot of times with these calls where there's one, there's multiple patients. So to start, let's review just what carbon monoxide is and where it comes from. So it is colorless and it's odorless and it's produced from any incomplete combustion of anything that contains carbon. And so it could be from, you know, burning coal, burning natural gas, a house fire, um, any type of combustion engine, for instance, so exhaust from your car, exhaust from a boat, a forklift. Um, and then there's kind of some more obscure exposures too. So there's something called methylene chloride, 
which is a paint stripper. And if you ingest it, uh, it gets actually converted in your body to carbon monoxide. You're actually seeing less and less of that because the EPA put out some new regulations where it's becoming less and less commercially available. But that was one where you could actually ingest it and develop carbon monoxide poisoning, but it'd be delayed because your body has to metabolize it. But more often than not, it's going to be from car exhaust, an improperly working furnace, so anything that's combusting and not doing it correctly and you being exposed to the carbon monoxide. I know we're seeing it in our city a lot, but I think people are seeing it around the country. And that's the amount of like improvised encampments with people experiencing homelessness and that sort of thing that are cooking on an open flame, heating it with an open flame mm-hmm. or like combustion sources. And so I think it's with a winter coming again, I think it's a really good thing for us to be thinking about as EMS providers. Yeah, absolutely. The one thing I did mention is obviously a fire is a big, you know, carbon monoxide exposure as well too. So house fires, someone's tent catching on fire because they're trying to heat it with uh, propane tanks or whatnot. Yeah, definitely a big risk factor for carbon monoxide. There's other things too, like you can read about people who smoke hookah and suddenly get really, they have significant headache, they have loss of consciousness, they have nausea, vomiting, and they've had carboxyhemoglobin percentages of like 25, 30, 38%. And so there's a wide variety of different sources. And sometimes you don't even know the exposure. You just have to have a high index of suspicion where you're like, hey, everybody here has the same symptoms and they're kind of vague like headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, kind of this global fatigue, where it could easily be confused for a viral illness, particularly in winter too. So sometimes if you don't have the exposure history, it's really easy to miss because sometimes the symptoms are really vague and nonspecific and could be attributed to influenza or in this case, COVID. And so sometimes you just have to be really thinking about it in order to pick it up if you don't have that very clear exposure history. One of the biggest risk factors for this is heating and enclosed space with an open flame. So definitely keep that in mind. To sum it up, as John said, carbon monoxide poisoning occurs from inappropriate combustion devices in a poorly ventilated space. So that's what it is and where it comes from. But what does it do? Why does this cause problems? There are two big things. And I think the thing that most people think of is that they know carbon monoxide loves hemoglobin. So its affinity for hemoglobin is approximately 200 to 250 times more than oxygen. And so you basically have this hemoglobin that's non-functional. You can't deposit oxygen to your organs. And so you functionally develop hypoxemia to different organs, particularly the heart and brain, the ones that we're probably most concerned about. And so that's the big thing. However, carbon monoxide in and of itself is rather toxic. It causes other things to happen as well, too. So what happens is it causes a lot of oxidative stress, which results in inflammation and then um, destruction of cells. And this we can talk about a little bit later, but this is really kind of the thing that causes these um, long-term sequelae of being exposed to carbon monoxide. And it's really interesting. They did this one study where they took dogs and they exposed them to a bunch of carbon monoxide. All of them died. And then they took that blood from those dead dogs and they put them in healthy dogs. And none of those dogs had any symptoms. And it just goes to show you that even though they have carboxyhemoglobin circulating in their blood, they were never exposed to the gas and they weren't symptomatic. And so it's really a combination of those two things that makes carbon monoxide really, really dangerous and lethal. What? Sorry, go over again. What happened to the second round of dogs? Yeah, so basically they took those dead dogs that they exposed to carbon monoxide, they took their blood out of them, and then they basically transfused a bunch of healthy dogs with that bad blood that basically had a bunch of uh, hemoglobin with carbon monoxide bound to it. They give it to those dogs that were healthy and not exposed to carbon monoxide, and none of those dogs had symptoms. 
And so it just goes to show that carbon monoxide is doing something that's unrelated to it being bound to hemoglobin to cause really bad symptoms. How much carbon monoxide do we need to be exposed to to start to be affected by that? And can you even put those sorts of brackets around it? I think oftentimes we often underestimate as well how much carbon monoxide we need to be sick. And so if we think about how much oxygen is in the atmosphere, so it's 21%. And so uh, like NIOSH, OSHA, these kind of regulatory agencies that put out recommendations about how much carbon monoxide is dangerous. So when they talk about someone who's working in an environment where they might be exposed to carbon monoxide, they use this term time-weighted average. And it's basically 35 to 50 parts per million over eight hour period that you can be exposed to where they say, if anything's above that, that's unsafe, unhealthy. And there's a ceiling too, and that ceiling is 200 parts per million. So if we think about that compared to how much oxygen's in the environment, so we're at 21%, so that's 210,000 parts per million of oxygen. And so if you think about a ceiling effect where they say, if it's above 200, you need to get it there immediately, that's 1,000 times less the amount of oxygen that's in the environment that can cause significant toxicity. Mm. So you really don't need a lot of carbon monoxide to get sick from it. And any time in which you are combusting something, you're going to create carbon monoxide. And so it's particularly dangerous when you're in a closed, poorly ventilated space, or you're behind something that's going to produce a bunch of carbon monoxide. So other classic stories are like someone who's working on a forklift, is running it, and then gets out to do something behind it, and all of a sudden they're knocked out unconscious or something that obviously doesn't happen here in Colorado. Well, maybe depending if you're riding boats, but more so like in the Southwest, like teak boarding. Have you heard of teak boarding where basically pontoons have this giant gas bubble that they have, um, they emit from the exhaust and people will ride behind it. And all of a sudden this big gas bubble hits them in the face and they're knocked unconscious. And so it's, it's a severe toxicity and does not take much to make you ill. Um, and so I think that's a good primer. And I think the source that you mentioned is pretty common, but there's other things too. Like you can read about people who smoke hookah and suddenly get really, they have significant headache, they have loss of consciousness, they have nausea, vomiting, and they've had carboxyhemoglobin percentages of like 25, 30, 38%. And so there's a wide variety of different sources. And sometimes you don't even know the exposure. You just have to have a high index of suspicion where you're like, hey, everybody here has the same symptoms and they're kind of vague like headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, kind of this global fatigue, where it could easily be confused for a viral illness, particularly in winter too. So sometimes if you don't have the exposure history, it's really easy to miss because sometimes the symptoms are really vague and nonspecific and could be attributed to influenza or in this case, COVID. And so sometimes you just have to be really thinking about it in order to pick it up if you don't have that very clear exposure history. It's really hard for you just to kind of get a gestalt as to like, oh, I'm in a room and it's burning and I'm being exposed to carbon monoxide, right? We're all exposed to carbon monoxide in the environment because we have combustion with cars, but it's a wide open space. It's well ventilated. And so it's hard to kind of say when you're at risk or not at risk. I would say if you're burning something in an enclosed space, that's definitely at risk. And so they put out different parts per million concentrations. And sometimes uh, our fire colleagues can actually provide us with those values with some of the tools they have. But so anything that's like above 200 is, you know, would say you need to get out of there. That's unsafe. You can get symptomatic from it. And some of the 
carbon monoxide alarms that will trigger anywhere from like 75 to 400 parts per million, depending on the duration and time in which it's exposed to that. And so you can use those as kind of ways to measure it. But the problem is you just don't know if you're being exposed to it. There's nothing to cue you as a human to say, hey, I'm being exposed to carbon monoxide. There's no odor, there's no smell. And so when you start developing symptoms, that's significant enough exposure where you should probably try to get out of there. But oftentimes you're not aware that you're being exposed to carbon monoxide. Something that I've heard that I honestly don't know if it's true or not mm -hmm. is that carbon monoxide is like heavier than atmospheric air, so it'll collect in low-lying areas. Can you speak to that? Because I think sometimes people try to get pre-hospital providers try to get in the weeds about looking, well, were they in the basement or not? Were they, you know, maybe they're con uh, working on some sort of construction project and like, well, they weren't in the lowest part of the the tunnel or, or what have you. Yeah, so we're gonna get real nerdy real quick. So the, 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 the atomic weight, yeah, yeah, the atomic weight of oxygen is 16, right? So oxygen is O2, right? So it's 32. And then carbon is 14 plus the oxygen, right? So you're pretty similar in size. So I would just assume it's in the same places as oxygen. It's not heavy like mustard gas, for instance, that settles below, you know? So it, I would just assume that's everywhere. Um, so I wouldn't say if someone's in the basement, they're at higher risk for developing it as opposed to being up there. It's, it's more important to determine where the source is, and that's where fire can be really helpful. If they go to each room and be like, okay, this place is like lit up with CO, but the living room is totally fine, that's super helpful because then we can be like, well, who was in that room? They're probably exposed to it. But there is no variation in terms of the density of the gas. It's pretty similar to oxygen. So kind of looking more at maybe the ventilation of exactly, the Exactly, exactly, and the source of where it's coming from. But it, presumably, let's say the source is in the corner of this room, it's gonna be everywhere that oxygen is. It's not gonna be settling at the bottom or settling at the top. It's just gonna be wherever our oxygen is. So I'm gonna put my snorkel away. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You mentioned the affinity for hemoglobin. How long does that last? And what does it take to then bump it off? It will dissociate, but it's really slow. So for instance, if someone gets exposed to carbon monoxide, the half-life at room air is about four to five hours. And so that's the reason why we give supplemental oxygen because we can change that half-life. And what we're essentially doing is just providing more oxygen to hopefully sneak in there and sit on a hemoglobin site essentially while one of the carbon monoxide kind of drifts off somewhere. And so if you give you know 100% oxygen with a non-rebreather, we're talking about a half-life of like 90 minutes. And we talk about other therapies like hyperbaric oxygen therapy. When you're doing like three atmospheres, the half-life is anywhere from like four minutes to 20 minutes. And so we're basically just providing something to hopefully sneak back into the hemoglobin site while carbon monoxide is drifting off. But it takes a long while for it to dissociate. And there have been studies where they actually look at like CPAP, for instance. And those studies, and this is all kind of new and more and more people are doing it, but the, the half-life is shorter than if they were just placed on nine rebreather, 15 liters per minute, and their time from symptom resolution and their time to having um, undetectable carbon monoxide percentage is better than um, using non-rebreather. So some people are starting to use that. I don't necessarily have a, a preference because a lot of the studies are they're coming out more and more, but I wouldn't say it's substantial, but if someone can tolerate CPAP, I think there's probably some evidence to suggest that they're gonna get better quicker. So. Once that hemoglobin with a, what would you say, has a high concentration? Usually say percentage. It's usually, okay. yeah, it tells you when you get the test result back, it's like this much of your hemoglobin is bound to, is bound with carbon monoxide. So you'd say like 15% or 20% or 25% of it is carboxyhemoglobin. Once that's getting into our brain, mm -hmm. what's happening? 
Yeah, so that's where all the bad stuff happens, and that's what can make you symptomatic then, and can also lead to symptoms, you know, a month, two months, three months from then. And so essentially what's happening is, one, you're not delivering oxygen to critical organs, so you're going to have hypoxemia, but then you're also having things that are happening with carbon monoxide itself. And so you can think of it as it causing a lot of oxidative stress, so it's creating free radicals. And free radicals essentially result in inflammation, so you have neutrophil recruitment, you have leaks of your capillaries, and you essentially promote cell death and cell dysfunction. And so that's what's happening at the level of the heart, and more you know, concerning is at the level of the brain, that you're causing central nervous system dys dysfunction by causing cellular dysfunction and potentially cellular death. What level does that occur? Yeah, so very tricky question. So they've tried to do studies where they could try to prognosticate based off your carboxyhemoglobin percentage. And unfortunately, there's not a, a number that exists to say yes or no. There's recommendations in which we consider therapy like hyperbaric oxygen therapy, and that level is 20, greater than 25%. But to say at which level someone is that symptomatic, there's not good evidence to say if you're below that, you shouldn't be symptomatic. There's a lot of host variables as well, too. For instance, if someone who has like CAD who's anemic, you know, if you take out only 10% of their hemoglobin, they're going to be more symptomatic than, let's say, a 20-year-old who's completely healthy, who's got clean coronaries, and can, you know, handle that kind of insult to their hemoglobin and their oxygen delivering capacity. So it's all very variable, but there are concentrations that we think of, and that's more when we consider different type of treatment modalities as opposed to whether or not they're symptomatic. And sometimes people will have elevated carboxyhemoglobin percentages because they smoke. So smokers can have somewhere between 10 to 15%. People who smoke cigars can be a little bit higher. People who um, smoke hookah frequently can be at 20% and be not symptomatic. So it's very variable. I would say you should take the symptoms um, into consideration and use the carboxyhemoglobin percentage to kind of help confirm your exposure, but not necessarily use that concentration to dictate whether or not you'd expect someone to be symptomatic. Something that comes to mind is in paramedic school, you're kind of taught the um, the textbook presentation of headache, nausea, vomiting, maybe syncope. Are there any of those symptoms that are more hallmark than others and more predictable than others? Yeah, so they've done studies, and unfortunately, it's very vague. So like headache is the number one complaint. Uh, it's like headache, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, generalized weakness. And then you get some more of the concerning features where you talk about seizure, loss of consciousness, people going to have chest pain, shortness of breath as well too. But unfortunately, the, the quintessential signs and symptoms are very vague and could be you know someone who has a migraine or someone who's coming down with a URI as well too. But headache is probably the one that's most specific to carbon monoxide poisoning. Great. So the symptoms are super vague and mirror just about every other disease process. Yeah, you'll hear it again and again in this episode. It's really that index of suspicion combined with risk factors and history of exposure that triggers you to start thinking about carbon monoxide with all of these vague symptoms. That's why the information the paramedics gather in the field and relay to us in the hospital is so important. For the mildly symptomatic patient mm -hmm. that is going to the emergency department, besides potentially remaining on high flow oxygen, what are some of the things that you're going to assess in them as a toxicologist? I'll look for other signs and symptoms where I think that we may need to have a discussion with the physicians that run the chambers to see if this patient is a candidate for hyperbarics. 
Because some of those symptoms can be subtle. Uh, like for instance, confusion might be an indication for hyperbarics or a GCS less than 15, right? And lots of people are just GCS 15 walking around and not necessarily because they're exposed to carbon monoxide. And so looking for those things, but I'm also looking for any evidence to suggest that they're having symptoms as a result of them being hypoxemic essentially. So are you having chest pain? Are you having shortness of breath? Do I need to get an EKG? Do I need to get troponin? And so those are the, those are the things I'm looking for. Do you think paramedics should have a low threshold to assess for cardiac ischemia on a 12 lead? Oh, I think you should just routinely get uh, EKGs on these patients if you're exposed to CO. Um, you know, generally they have to be symptomatic, but if it's someone who is asymptomatic but is old and has risk factors, I would definitely just get an EKG. I would have a very low threshold to get EKGs on these patients. And there have been studies where they looked at, you know, troponin elevations and people who are exposed to carbon monoxide. And there is these people do have worse outcomes later. But the problem is we're now using high sensitivity troponins. And some of these people who may just had syncope and no other symptoms to suggest cardiac ischemia are having bump troponins. So it's hard to determine why that's happening. Is our test too sensitive? Because all the other studies were done with troponins that were not high sensitive. And so I'm pretty cautious about sending troponins unless the patient is having chest pain or shortness of breath or the patient has you know, multiple medical comorbidities where I think the risk for ischemia is quite high, even if they're not having classic symptoms to suggest that. There is some thought that then you probably need to call the cardiologist because then you're asking yourself, you know, are they having cardiac ischemia and now they need to have their coronaries checked out to see if there's anything that needs to be intervened upon. If you talk to the doctor that runs the hyperbarics chamber, they're probably less likely to take a patient whose troponins are going up because they want the cardiologist to evaluate them first because it's really hard to take care of a critically ill patient in a chamber. It's small, it's pressurized, it's hard to have lots of hands on the patients. And so generally speaking, that's something they would want you to do before they even consider about taking that patient to the chamber to, talk, to get hyperbaric therapy. While we're on the topic, discuss the, the advantages of hyperbaric oxygen therapy. Yeah. And so one is you decrease the half-life of carbon monoxide. Two, you're providing tons more oxygen than you can if the patient were intubated with FiO2 of 100%. So you're doing like two and a half atmospheres, three and a half or three atmospheres. So tons more oxygen, enough oxygen where you can actually just saturate the blood with oxygen that's not attached to the hemoglobin and you can support them that way. And so you're basically supporting the cells with, hey, here's some oxygen. There's so much of it. You don't need it to be transported by hemoglobin to get to your cells. The reason people think that it's indicated, it's because of the symptoms that people develop you know, a month, two months, three months after being exposed to carbon monoxide. And so the term that they use in the literature is neurocognitive sequelae. And so some people who get exposed to carbon monoxide develop memory issues, um, agitation, confusion, dementia-like features, Parkinsonian features. And the literature is very variable and whether or not hyperbarics work. There are some studies to say there's no benefit. There's some studies to say there is some benefit. Um, and so, and even the American College of Emergency Physicians says there's not enough evidence to make one recommendation versus the other. So it's really case by case basis. There are some hard indications that we think about in which we'll have a conversation with a doctor who runs a chamber. And so that's thing like syncope, seizure, coma, confusion, a percentage that's higher than 25% regardless of symptoms, or this kind of extenuating circumstances where they have a prolonged exposure, uh, the persistence of symptoms. So there's a lot of leeway in 
whether or not you should do hyperbaric oxygen therapy. And so it's really case by case basis, just because the literature is so variable as to whether it actually has a benefit or not. John, obviously this is probably not common, but very much within the realm of possibility. Can you talk about pregnant patients? And as a pre-hospital provider, should any of our thresholds be different? Yeah, that's a very good question because pregnant patients are treated differently. And so I talked about that percentage of 25 for pregnant patients, that concentration where we get concerned is 15. And then we also want to know if there's any signs of fetal distress. And so those are some of the conservative indications where you would think about offering hyperbaric oxygen therapy for those patients. And so it is a little different when the patients are pregnant. So it's really important to determine whether or not we're you know, transporting patients pregnant or not pregnant because our threshold for escalating treatment is a little different for that patient population. Is there a situation where a pre-hospital provider should think about transporting to a facility that's hyperbaric chamber equipped? It's tough because chambers today are being more used for like wound care. And so they run like nine to five and there's no one on call. And, and there's a lot of regional variability and the willingness to take these patients to the chamber. And so I'd say locally, probably not, but there's just specific cultural variations in whether or not people are, are like, yes, we'll take this patient to the chamber, or you can't even get a hold of the patient or the person who's running the chamber to talk about the patient. And so I wouldn't necessarily transport to a facility based off whether or not they have a chamber, because you can always transfer them after. It's not something that needs to be done immediately. It can be done within the first 24 hours. And oftentimes it's really not an acute resuscitation measure. It's more to prevent those other symptoms that we talked about and like I said, the literature isn't great. And so if there were like fantastic literature saying people who go to the chamber do really, really well, I th think there'd be more of a push to transport patients to facilities that are equipped with chambers. But right now I'd say the literature is so mixed, you should just get them to the closest hospital so they can get supplemental oxygen, evaluate for any other kind of consequences um, from being exposed to carbon monoxide, like hypoxemia resulting in ACS or, you know, uh, something going on with the brain, like, you know, a CVA or ataxia, and then if they find something that's concerning, they can always have that conversation with uh, the, the doctor running the chamber. It's interesting listening to you talk about the chamber because I think pre-hospital providers know there's utility in the chamber, and it, but they, you've help, been helpful in shedding some light on where that utility lies, and it's kind of interesting, if I hear you correctly, there's this sweet middle ground mm -hmm. where incredibly critically ill, the chamber's probably not the place for them to go, and minor symptoms that are improving, they're not going to go to the chamber either. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's a very common misconception, a misconception that I had before I did fellowship is like, if you're really sick, you need to go to the chamber. But the thing is that you probably shouldn't go because the care that you need is really hard to perform in a chamber, and you're not doing it to make you better right then and there. You're doing it to prevent these potentially bad things that can happen to you as a result of the bad CO exposure in terms of having maybe dementia in worst case scenario or Parkinson's in worst case scenario. And so it's really used as a method to prevent those things from happening as opposed to facilitating a resuscitation. That was a nice deep dive on hyperbaric chambers and carbon monoxide poisoning. Good one. The philosophy of this podcast is that it's important we have a deeper understanding of these concepts, but in the field decisions surrounding the hyperbaric chamber, they're not really going to affect your care. 
the patient needs to be resuscitated first, and this can't occur in a hyperbaric chamber. So we're still going to transport to the closest facility where the toxicologist and dive doc can sort it out on the back end. It's not a super time-sensitive therapy. To go back to, a, 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 if you will, a parallel track. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've talked about how vague symptoms are really common. Headache, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, weakness, confusion. What are, what are some more objective findings that we might see? And what tools do we have in the pre-hospital setting that will help us measure those? EKG is great. Right, you can see things that suggest that there's cardiac ischemia. Some people might just have a full-on STEMI, and so I think that's a really good screening tool to say, "Hey, you've been exposed to carbon monoxide, and you're having really significant signs and symptoms as a result of that." Another thing that is out there is the the pulse co-oximeters. Uh, so, Massimo is a product, and so. We get plenty of calls about this. There'll be uh, some places can't even send a carboxyhemoglobin percentage, and they're just basing their decision making off the pulse cooximeter. And I think they're great screening tools. And so when it first came out, I think in the mid two thousands, they published their own type of studies, and they basically said their standard deviation of error was like three percent. And then there have been subsequent validation studies that have been published in the literature that show that it's it's wildly variable. There are people who will be measuring like 30%, and when you actually measure it in the blood, it's 5%, and then inverse of the situation as well, too. And so there's a lot of discrepancy as to what you're reading on there and what is actually confirmed on blood. So I think it's a great screening tool to say, yes, you've been exposed to carbon monoxide, but it's hard to use that actual value to dictate management from that point. I think they should be immediately placed on supplemental oxygen as much as you can give them. But, you know, a reading of 25% might actually be 50% or a reading of 30% might actually be 10%. And so it's hard to say like, oh, this guy's concentration is really high. We should drive him to a place as a chamber because there's such wide variability in those numbers. So I think it's an excellent screening tool, but I think it's hard to use that actual numeric value to say, hey, they're this high. We should transport to a place where I know they have a chamber. Um, so it's, I think it's really good to figure out if someone's having vague symptoms and you're like, oh, it's measuring 25%, that might confirm your suspicion that this patient has a carbon monoxide exposure where they don't have any clear exposure history. Basically, it's present. Exactly, yeah. exactly. It's there, it's not there. The actual numerical value, I think, is so variable, it's hard to hang your hat on that number based off the studies. I was always taught your pulse oximetry reading will be high or normal. Mm-hmm. Is that true? Yeah. If anything, it's going to measure normal for the most part. Some people may have other reasons to be hypoxemic, let's say an aspiration pneumonia, pulmonary edema. I would probably trust that hypoxemia, but I wouldn't say, oh, they're 100%. I really think they're 100%. They might be like functionally like 90%. It's just because we lose that distinction with just the normal poximeter between the carboxyhemoglobin and the other type of hemoglobin you want with oxygen on it. And the, the tool gets gets displayed as a SPCO, SPMET in one. And I don't think a lot of pre-hospital providers actually know that's two separate things it's measuring. The MET refers to MET hemoglobinemia. And so that's, for instance, like, have you heard of poppers before? Like the the drug? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So poppers can cause, so that's amyl nitrate. And that We're not talking ca- about the like... Appetizer at no. Applebee's? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, not the jalapeno buffers. 
Uh, no, the poppers you buy at the gas station for other purposes. And so that gives you something called methemoglobinemia, and that causes a dysfunction in your hemoglobin as well, too. And so it could report that as well, too. And so, although I don't know what the accuracy is for that, but met hemoglobin is definitely far rarer than carbon monoxide exposures, but that's what the met is referring to on that. I think we've confused our listeners with regards to the different disorders involving hemoglobin's oxygen carrying capabilities. Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think it's worth describing the basic concepts just a little more. There's all these different types of hemoglobins out there. A good one is where oxygen's on it and it can get rid of oxygen and then it can go back to the lung and get oxygen on it. Bad types of hemoglobin are the ones where it's bound to uh, carbon monoxide. And then methemoglobinemia is basically, it makes your iron inside your hemoglobin dysfunctional, so it can't bind oxygen at all. And so it changes it from the two to three plus state, and it needs to be in that certain state for oxygen to bind to it. So it alters it in a way in which it can't interact with oxygen in an appropriate way. And so that's a different disease process that's caused by things redu by reducing agents. So like ammonitrate is a classic example of someone like took a bunch of that and all of a sudden they're like cyanotic and you go take their pulse ox and it's like 88%. That's like the classic story for methemoglobinemia. Let's say I work as a paramedic in a place that doesn't have these devices or for whatever reason I'd, I'm not trusting the reading it's getting. Are there other vital sign changes that I can look to that are indicative of the severity of the patient? I mean, if they're tachycardic, that'd be worrisome to me. And if they have confusion, that'd be worse. So really I would use their vital signs and their symptoms to clue you in. People might be exposed to like, oh, I have a little bit of a headache, but if they're confused, they're ataxic when you try to get them up and walk, they have a reported um, episode of syncope, to me that would ex to suggest a severe carbon monoxide exposure. My mind as a paramedic goes to this easy jump, mm -hmm. which is in the story we outlined, which is, uh, multiple people partying, partying in an enclosed space with combustion. And then we've also uh, covered, you know, persons experiencing homelessness that are maybe heating their, their shelter or wherever they live with open mm -hmm. combustion. Um, in these situations or in these populations, there's always the potential for alcohol consumption. Does alcohol consumption in combination to carbon monoxide, does that change anything? Oh yeah, I mean, I feel like alcohol counts everything we do in the emergency department. Besides that guy's make intoxicated, it more fun. right? Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, it can definitely give you diagnostic dilemma, right? Because it's going to give you all. I mean, like I've drank and I've stumbled places and I've passed out because I drank so much and I wasn't exposed to carbon monoxide, so it definitely can confound what you think's going on. And I think that's why you know having the Mossimo is a good screening tool. You like throw it on there and it's like reading twenty percent. That'd be abnormal, right? And so you're, I would say alcohol is probably a big mimicker in addition to like just viral illnesses in winter for people having vague nonspecific complaints. But yeah, alcohol definitely could confound your exam because they're having all those hallmark signs and symptoms that we commonly associate with a severe CO exposure. But if you don't have that history, then you're like, oh, this guy just drank too much. So yeah, for sure. As you described that, I'm thinking about this um, call that I was on where three people were living in a RV. Mm -hmm. And the, they were using an external generator to provide electrical power and heat. But the exhaust from the generator was right behind the vehicle, and there was an open window there. Uh -huh. And so we were called for one of their friends was difficult to arouse, but all of them had been drinking alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, as a paramedic, you're there like, oh, my gosh, we've got these three intoxicated patients right. early in the morning. 
but one of we put one of them on the pulse oximeter, mm-hmm. and then it's alerting us that it's detecting a significant amount of carbon monoxide, mm-hmm. and then that alone was the the key in our mind of right. oh my gosh, there of course the generator, you know, yeah, yeah, it can be hard, and there's been cases where people are just you know living in a multiple unit facility. And it seeps through the drywall. And so you might even have that exposure history. There's been horrible cases where like families have died because, you know, someone below them was using a barbecue to heat their unit and it seeped through the drywall and they're exposed to it overnight. And so it it can happen. It can seep through places more so with drywall, not less like with brick or any kind of really significant kind of material. But yeah, sometimes you won't even have that history. And unfortunately, people get exposed to it because they're in a unit where other people are doing things that are producing carbon monoxide. Well, that's terrifying. Also, I didn't know they showed an SPO2 met. We'll have to bring John back on to talk about that some more. Yeah, that was interesting news to me as well. So, John, let me throw something at you. Let's say you I'm got? working on an ambulance mm-hmm. and I'm evaluating a patient for syncope, mm-hmm. which is a very common reason to get called on an ambulance. And th- there's not a great story for carbon monoxide, but all of a sudden my... I have them on the pulse oximeter and it registers carboxyhemoglobin. Yep. What do you think? Should I do something with that? Should I, is that alone enough reason to take further action? Yeah, I think so. I mean, our, our intervention is quite harmless, right? It's a supplemental oxygen. In very few instances, is oxygen harmful, harmful to somebody? So I think you just say, hey, I'm going to trust this value even though there's no exposure and place them on oxygen. And it's super easy for us to t- send a blood test. It's back like within 20 minutes. And so it doesn't necessarily buy this guy like a 12 hour stay in the emergency department. We can literally send it and confirm it. And then we could be like 10%. He's like, oh yeah, I smoke every day. You're like, well, that's probably why it's elevated. And so I think it's completely harmless by just tossing some oxygen on the patient and then sending them to the ED. And then we can confirm the exposure to see if it was true or, or negative. So when I when I took my very first EMS certification class, it was there is no wrong amount of oxygen. I mean, mm-hmm. the the test, the answer to every test question was high flow by non-rebreather, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And then I think the pendulum swung a little bit back, and we've realized that there are some negative effects of of over oxygenating patients. Mm-hmm. Can you kind of talk through some of that balance? I mean, is that even a concern in the setting of someone that does have significant CO exposure? No, because it's really the carbon monoxide that's causing the toxicity and their symptoms. And so oxygen, you can think of as as the antidote. It probably gets a little dicey when, let's say, this guy is actually having an MI where they've looked at studies to say, you know, too much oxygen is bad. You know, you have worse scarring, worse outcomes. And But still, you need to give them the antidote because otherwise you're going to have, you know, perseverance of that carbon monoxide in their system causing their symptoms. So I, I think you still have to do it, cause, but that's a very unique situation where you're like, hey, I know oxygen's bad in this situation, but the antidote for the thing that made him sick is the oxygen. So I think that's a very unique situation, but I would still give him oxygen nonetheless. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Honestly, when it comes down to it, if you work in an urban system with short transport times, you're unlikely to do harm with oxygen for any condition. The studies that have shown harm and worse outcomes in some disease processes where we use too much oxygen were all with oxygen that was administered over hours and days. Ross, we started talking about the scenario where the monitor alerts to an abnormal carboxyhemoglobin that you weren't expecting, but in retrospect, there was a potential exposure, and so you elect to treat that. 
What about the scenario where you're treating the patient for something completely unrelated and there's no history of all at a potential exposure and no symptoms of carbon monoxide poisoning? What do you do then? I think in that case, it's probably likely to be a false positive. I think the only problem is that carbon monoxide is pretty litigious. So let's say if that person goes to another hospital and for whatever reason now he's saying he's a headache and they check it and they're like, well, the paramedics checked it and they didn't do anything about it. And now I have permanent memory loss because I was exposed to carbon monoxide. And so it becomes more of a medical legal thing as opposed to like that guy never was really exposed to it and he just had a false positive. I think I would just err on the side of caution and be like, hey, it's elevated. We're going to put some oxygen on you. I think it's probably worth calling base, be like, hey. And I think more often than not, they're going to be like, just transport the guy. We'll check it when it gets here. I th- obviously, they can refuse if they're like, I don't want to go in for whatever reason. But I think it's totally reasonable. If it's positive, then you have to do something about it because we know there's such a wide variation. If it's reading 10%, he could be really 30%. And even if you're not symptomatic, that would still be potentially an indication for that patient to talk to a doctor that runs a chamber to see if he needs hyperbaric oxygen therapy. So I think it's probably just worth transporting if the patient's willing, despite having any symptoms that are consistent with CO exposure. But it's a tough one. That's not, it's not easy, especially for the, the patient who stubs their toe. <laughs> you yeah. check it and it's elevated. More often than not, it's because they're a smoker and they're not divulging that. We've had that happen many times where people come and we're like, why is this high? Like we, we called their family to see if anybody else was symptomatic. And they're like, no, we all feel good. And then finally, the guy's like, well, you know, I've been smoking a pack per day for the last 10 years, but nobody knows. And so stuff like that. And, and so sometimes you kind of go down a rabbit hole when you're trying to figure out why, and they just won't divulge why it's high because they smoke all the time. But I, I think it's still totally reasonable, right? Because then what happens if it's true positive, he lives with a family, and the reason that he's feeling better is because now he's outside of the environment, which he's exposed to carbon monoxide, and that's why he feels better. And meanwhile, his family is sitting in the exposure, and they're getting symptomatic. And so I think there's just too many kind of holes that may potentially get yourself in trouble and make someone else sicker or other people who might be exposing carbon monoxide just to say, hey, we shouldn't transport. I think this is false positive because they're not symptomatic. And that happens a lot too. People will get to the emergency department and they're like, I feel totally better. And we're like, yeah, you should feel better because you're no longer exposed to the thing that making you're sick. And so I, I would still just transport based off kind of all the kind of things that are going on in my mind in terms of like potential exposures, other people getting sick and things like that. Is there anything that would clue us in that this is carbon monoxide exposure if we don't have this, the history or story to support it? I wish. <laughs> it, it, that's, this is why it makes it so hard. It, it mimics all sorts of disease states. And if you don't, I mean, most people don't think about it when someone walks in with a headache and feeling weak, you're like, oh, you got a man cold, like you just need to rest and you know, you'll be fine. And so it's, it's really hard. There, I wouldn't say there's anything specific. I wish there was like a specific sign or symptom where you're like, oh yeah, that guy has CO exposure. But it masquerades so much. Without that exposure history, it's really hard to detect. I think it should, net, net, for that reason, it should be kind of in the back of our mind at all times. But like, huh, like you have this vague symptom, you have this vague symptom, you have this vague symptom, you're all in the same house. And now that you're outside, you're all feeling better. That's probably my biggest clue. Some people are like, oh, now that we're here, we actually feel a lot better. I'd be like, well, that's because you just left the environment at ICO. But sometimes it can be so tough. But I would say if lots of people have similar symptoms in the same household. Yeah, that could be infectious, but it could also be CO. And we tend to see a lot of these right around winter time when people are starting to use their furnaces, using alternative forms to heat their home. And so that's probably a time in which I'd be a little bit more vigilant about thinking of it at least. Are there any common toxicities you see in conjunction with CO? I'm thinking about cyanide from a structure fire or uh, any of those other 
byproducts of combustion that can can be toxic to folks? Yeah, I would say cyanide is the number one, particularly with house fires, because they're going to be exposed to that. You know, any any kind of thing that's uh, you know like a textile as it burns is going to produce cyanide. And, you know, carbon monoxide can give you an elevated lactate cyanide as well, too. And so it gets a little tricky. You're asking yourself, well, is this from CO exposure or is this from cyanide? Cyanide concentrations, unfortunately, those take forever to come back. And so it's really just a clinical diagnosis. Generally speaking, the cyanide causes way higher lactates than with carbon monoxide. We're talking like maybe four with CO, where a cyanide, you'll resuscitate, and they might go from six to 10. And you're like, hmm, that's weird. Now, if you resuscitate with CO, it should go down. But that's probably the one that we see most concomitantly with CO exposures is cyanide. And sometimes it can be really hard to tease because insignificant CO exposures, you can have hypotension, you can have an elevated lactate, you can have altered mental status. The thing is those should get better with resuscitation, whereas if it's cyanide and you haven't given the antidote like hydroxycobalamin, it's only going to get worse. And that's the big thing for me. We'll get that call often. They're like, hey, we think this is cyanide. I was like, well, you know, give them fluids see what their blood pressure does, recheck their lactate. And despite that, it's still going up. I think my my concern for cyanide is much higher now as opposed to just saying it's just CO. And so those are the kind of things we use to discern whether or not this is carbon monoxide versus cyanide. A lot of the therapies you've described are incremental delivery methods of oxygen from removing someone from the environment and exposing them to atmospheric oxygen all the way to like hyperbaric oxygen. Are there pharmacological treatments or any other treatments other than just oxygen? Yeah, there's some really cool ones, but they're all experimental. And so there's something called, uh, they're called succinate prodrugs. And so basically, so succinate is, you know, something you'll find in your Krebs cycle. And what CO does, it actually interferes with the way your mitochondria works. And that's what leads to this oxidative stress that we talked about earlier. And it helps kind of bypass what's going on with your mitochondria. So basically provides metabolic support to your cells. And then there's this really cool uh, protein called neuroglobulin. And so this is a heme-based protein that's found in our brain, our peripheral nervous system. And they've done studies when you minister that, the half-life of carbon monoxide is 25 seconds in red blood cells. But this is all very experimental. So all we got right now is just different iterations of oxygen, but there are some cool stuff out there that people are experimenting with, but unfortunately we can't play with. Yeah, so nothing that is routinely administered. Nope, just uh, some plastic on the face or between the windpipes or taking them to the chamber. That's all. (laughs) Fortunately, that's all we got. But it works really well. I mean, most people, I would say 95% of our exposures stay in the ED for like three, four, six hours. They get supplemental oxygen. They go, I feel great. And you send them home. It's very infrequent where we have to actually call the dive specialists to say, hey, I think this patient's a candidate for the chamber. Would you be willing to you know, accept the patient and take them so they can get hyperbaric oxygen therapy? That's pretty rare. It does happen. Another interesting thing is what, what you have to do to get the patient there. So for instance, you might have to fly them and now you're taking their partial pressure. <laughs> now you're taking them to where they have less atmosphere than they would at the surface of the earth. And you might be exacerbating their you know, underlying disorder. And so that's also kind of an interesting caveat that sometimes happens. We're like, is it worth the risk and benefit of taking them there? There's other things that can happen with hyperbaric oxygen therapy. You can have tympanic membrane rupture. You can have seizure. Something we would be remiss not to touch on is the common means of suicide mm-hmm. of um, like automobile exhaust in a, in a confined space. Yeah. Could you maybe touch on that? 
CO is still a common means of suicide, those numbers are actually going down. So people are using it less and less of a method to perform suicide. But you know, it, people, it's a very easy way, right? You just turn on your car, run it in the garage, and you close the door. And you know, ultimately, you will receive as much CO to you know, end your life. But it's definitely less and less of a thing, but still, still present. In the setting of cardiac arrest, uh, does that are there any management pearls or strategies unique to carbon monoxide poisoning? I mean, getting airway in sooner rather than later is important, but generally speaking, if you arrest from CO, that's probably uniformly fatal. Um, and so you're still going to do your ACLS and all that. And if you get, you know, ROSC, chances are they're going to have, you know, very significant hypoxemic encephalopathy, you know, basically things that were irreversible. And generally speaking, those patients don't go to the chamber because they're just so critically ill. And it's tough to manage a patient like that who's that ill in a chamber. But if you arrest from CO, the, the odds are very much against you in terms of coming out of that alive. And then I, I brought up the case mm -hmm. in the beginning of when we started talking. Uh, as you and I were discussing it, we actually realized I reviewed the case from a pre-hospital perspective, and you actually took care of some of these patients in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. Do you think um, there were any good takeaways from to kind of bring that case full circle, if you will? Yeah, well, I think first thing is keeping you guys safe. Like if you show up to a place and there's a poorly ventilated place and there's a bunch of people down, like don't go in there. You know, that's unsafe, right? There's clearly enough of some type of toxic gas or whatever that's causing these people to be down. So be sure to keep you guys safe. But it just shows you the wide variation in the symptoms that people can have. People from that um, uh, scene were some synced up, some just had a headache, some had chest pain, and there was a wide variation of age. And so it just goes to show you that even though they have the same exposure, their symptoms were so wildly different. That could be because someone who was 30 versus 40 or someone who's 16 versus 25, and each body is different and they react to this kind of stress that they're getting from being hypoxemic from the carbon monoxide. And so I think it just goes to show you that it can be any type of symptom from full-on syncope to obtundation to like, I have a headache and I feel a little sick. So I think that's the big takeaway from that particular scene that you guys are on. Your perspective as a toxicologist, what are three main take-home points for someone operating in the field that's potentially encountering a patient with CO poisoning? I think if you're suspicious of it, you should just treat it. I think, like I said, the intervention, for the most part, is pretty harmless, right? We're not giving a drug through an IV. We're just giving supplemental oxygen. I would use the pulse cooximeter, and if it's positive, I think you got to trust it. Or even if it's negative and they have an exposure history, you should just treat it as such. I think those are the things. And just realizing it, it can be very vague. You have to be thinking about it in order to detect it, particularly when you don't have an exposure history. So I think those are the big things. So you just, in order to catch it, you have to be thinking about it. CO is a particularly interesting example to me because the information that we gather as pre-hospital providers, it can be so critically important. And the initial interventions that we start can be so critically important. And A, determining that this is CO toxicity, and then B, starting the care that the emergency department will just continue. Yeah, it definitely triggers a pathway with the information you guys provide to us, the information that you collect on scene and en route, because you could definitely not go down that pathway if you have none of that information and you could just you know, inappropriately manage that patient. So you guys are tremendously helpful in getting that information because it really does steer you down a different pathway if you have that information and it could be very easily missed. 
John, thank you so yeah, absolutely. much. Absolutely. Thanks for um, having me. Uh, I love talking about this stuff. Uh,